From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Memorial Day weekend is the unofficial start of summer and the summer camping season. But how did Americans come to associate free time in the outdoors with tents? And what about other kinds of camping, like urban camping, as protest or out of necessity? We'll look at the history of camping in the United States and how it continues to shape laws and culture. Then we revisit the state's newest national natural landmark, a cave that is so toxic people dare not enter. This one's very unique because of what's in it, how it formed, and where it is. So you think you understand the earth, and then you go looking and you say, wow, I didn't understand that at all. And this is one of those places where that happened. We'll talk with a researcher who's one of the few to go inside. What he found is truly unique. If CPR is your lifeline for information and inspiration, help fund it with a donation. Monthly giving starts at $5 a month. Join for the first time, renew your support, or increase your sustaining gift. When you do, your gift will also plant a new tree in Colorado. So your generosity has twice the impact. Learn more and start, renew, or increase your membership at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. How did Americans come to associate free time in the outdoors with tent camping and roasting marshmallows over a fire? Phoebe Young is a history professor at the University of Colorado Boulder. She traced the history of people camping in the U.S. for fun, politics, and necessity. Her new book tells the story, Camping Grounds, Public Nature in American Life from the Civil War to the Occupy Movement. Thanks for being here, Professor. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. You wrote this book after your friend went camping for the first time in her adult life, and she told you about a conversation that she and her father had. How did that spark you to tell this story? So my friend uh, really enjoyed, she went to Zion National Park and enjoyed camping as an adult, and so went back and asked her dad, why didn't we go camping when I was a child? And his answer was that uh, we were poor and that when, when you were poor, sleeping on the ground is what you had to do. And when he went on vacation, and now that he had enough money, he didn't want to do that anymore. And that kind of sparked my interest in, in thinking about the ways in which the camping landscape is not the same for everybody, that people have different interests, different experiences in the outdoors. Obviously, camping is not a universal form of recreation, and there are a lot of different reasons why people do it. So you divide camping into three categories, and we'll talk about each of them in more depth But briefly, what are those three kinds of camping? Well, recreational camping is the kind we obviously sort of tend to think about most, uh, foremost in our mind, right? The the out under the stars, the s'mores, the campfire. Um, So that one is is the most obvious. But when you think about the practice of sleeping outside, uh, we look in history and also see people who slept outside for functional reasons, um, whether that was because they were migrating uh, or had there were no indoor lodgings to be had or in uh, modern times, right, unsheltered folks. But then we also see people who camped out for a cause um, to uh, protest uh, or to lobby the government and sort of testify um, to their presence uh, in, a, in public space. So let's start with the history of recreational camping, the kind of go away to the woods for fun kind of camping. I actually really enjoy 
this type of camping, but every time I go, it strikes me that it is kind of a weird activity. Setting up and taking down a campsite is a lot of work, and so is cooking on a camp stove. So where does recreational camping come from? So there are a number of origins, uh, but at a kind of the most uh, basic sense in the sort of uh, post-Civil War era, um, people uh, wanted to reconnect with the land. There was, you know, of course, the founding of the United States, very much connected to the agrarian world, to owning land and working it with your own labor, have a productive farm, um, became less and less possible as the country industrialized, people moved to cities. And so in a way, camping became uh, an attempt to, to sort of connect with the nation and American land, um, but this time through leisure, right? To be out in the outdoors um, doing that work, but doing it uh, as a way of um, escaping the city as well as kind of, you know, uh, uh, in the same ways we think about it as kind of rejuvenating yourself um, out in the outdoors. And this kind of camping, it had a few seminal moments, historical movements that really propelled it forward. Loop campgrounds, a bunch of permanent campsites along a loop of road, changed the game in the 1920s. So tell me about the designer. Absolutely. So um, uh, this fellow named Emilio Meineke, he was a plant pathologist for the U.S. Forest Service, and he got called into Sequoia National Park to help them figure out why the trees were dying. And what he found was that it was campers who were nailing their tent stakes onto the somewhat shallow roots of the redwood sequoia trees. Uh, And so he designed a campground in order to minimize the damage that campers had on the trees. This is the Loop Campground. If you've ever been to a state park or a a national park, Loop A, Site 12, um, that all dates back to um, that moment in the late 20s when they were trying to both protect the trees and create greater access to make that work of camping easier, that each site had a picnic table, a fire ring, and a driveway to accommodate all the those new automobile campers. So those problems that we know in camping and hiking now that people just using the outdoors can actually cause problems to the ecosystems. That's something that people have known going back to the 1920s about these campsites. Um, Outdoor recreation and, of course, camping, they're important to Colorado's economy today. So what can you tell us about the history of recreational camping here? So Colorado was one of the, you know, uh, destination spots in the late 19th century, in the 1920s, right? And still, of course, for wonderful camping in in the outdoors. Um, What I can say is that actually one of the prototypes even before Emilio Meineke's Loop Campground um, happened right here in Squirrel Creek, um, which is a place uh, in the San Isabel um, National Forest just a little bit west of Pueblo, where a designer, he called himself a recreation engineer, um, developed a kind of prototype of that loop campground that that um, got forgotten for a few years, but then picked back up. And so Colorado, in many ways, is uh, part of the progenitor of this uh, sort of interest in uh, recreational camping. Oh, wow. So in your book, John Muir represents a romantic attitude toward recreational camping that still exists. And he was the first president of the Sierra Club. He lobbied successfully for Yosemite National Park. What role did he play in shaping attitudes about recreational camping? 
So John Muir had a very particular style uh, when he was in outdoors, particularly in the Sierras, right, the place he made very famous, that he felt that the best way to connect with nature was um, to be very simple, to, you know, he would often hike off into the woods with just a hunk of cheese and and maybe a a half moldy um, lump of bread uh, and no tent. And that was, he felt, getting closer to nature. Um, But he also, in those spaces, saw indigenous people who were uh, sort of being more interactive with the land, being interdependent with it, living from the land, but also preserving it. Um, but he felt that that was not uh, the way he wanted to connect with nature. And a lot of people follow that the the idea that um, to really resonate with the lessons of nature, that you had to be kind of apart from it rather than living on it or working on it. And so that you start to see the division between leisure in nature and labor in nature. And John Muir gives us a kind of um, bellwether for tracking that. And that division was codified in some park systems where indigenous people were removed from land to make space for those. How do you see those attitudes in park systems in some ways continue to undermine indigenous people's relationships with land and natural resources? Well, I think that Part of the issue is that because they've become so clearly these playgrounds for us, right, to these are the places we go to recreate, um, to get away from labor, uh, that and they're supposed to be preserved in these kind of pristine states, right, that we believed that they were pristine, um, primeval wilderness, right, and they were not peopled spaces. Of course, as you're saying, indigenous folks had to be removed in order to create this unpeopled, pristine wilderness. And so trying to bring back a more um, kind of complex relationship uh, with the land uh, that uh, many uh, native groups practice um, has it comes into conflict with the recreational landscape. Well, let's move on a little bit to talking about some of the economic considerations of land as well. Modern recreational camping without talking about we can't talk about it without talking about obsession with gear. And you think that the consumer market for camping grew out of the environmental environmental movement. Um, but you also think that there's some irony there. Can you unpack that for us? Sure. So obviously gear has been a part of camping for a very long time. But I think the modern consumer market for outdoor gear really comes out of the 1960s and, and 1970s. And partly what was driving it is uh, a new attitude towards preserving the land and wanting to um, live lightly on it, right? Not make a lot of impact, leave no trace as it would become. So then instead of cutting down trees to build a fire, you have to bring a propane stove with you. Instead of cutting down boughs to soften your bed, you bring an air mattress, right? Um, Or you bring various forms of synthetic products to keep you warm uh, and to keep the rain off. And so in that way, in some ways, this this attempt to preserve the land has generated um, a heavy load elsewhere uh, in terms of producing these synthetic products. And the pandemic, it drove up interest in camping and even demand for campers and RVs. Do you think the pandemic brought long-term changes to recreational camping? Well, it's hard to make a prediction about that. It's a problem with studying the past and everyone (laughs) asks you to predict the future. Um, But I certainly see that it's accelerated some things that have been happening in the last um, decade in terms of a a kind of renewed interest in camping, particularly among a younger generation, um, of being able to reserve campsites, right? I mean, I think that's one thing we've seen in the pandemic is that it's pretty hard to come by a camping reservation these days. Uh, And so, you know, the idea of just heading out and, you know, plopping down an 
in a space is harder to do spontaneously. Uh, and so I think the pandemic has accelerated that sense that, that this is a, a place where we reserve a particular kind of site, and whether that's a national park site or a uh, kind of more backcountry site um, or a glamping uh, tent, right, that everybody can kind of choose your own adventure. A lot of ways to recreational camp. I am speaking with Phoebe Young, an associate professor of history at CU Boulder. Her new book is called Camping Grounds, Public Nature in American Life from the Civil War to the Occupy Movement. Let's talk about political camping. You spent a lot of time researching the Occupy Movement back in 2011. Thousands of people setting up camp, so to speak, in public spaces, mostly in the center of big cities to protest economic injustices they saw. What's the history of camping as protest? So we can trace the history of encamped protests uh, back to the post-Civil War era, at least. So, uh, for example, Civil War veterans, Union Army veterans, uh, formed a lobbying and kind of veterans group uh, that encamped uh, on Washington, D.C. and other cities, um, in part to lobby for pensions from the government. And so they used their camping and kind of uh, calling people to remember their service in the war uh, to create a, a sort of momentum um, to have veterans' pensions. We see that again in the 1890s and in the 1930s, where unemployed people camped out um, for various causes, mostly to get the government uh, to uh, help them out in desperate times. Uh, and then we see it throughout the 1960s uh, and early 70s, protesting um, racial injustice, um, as well as uh, uh, sort of the Vietnam War, and in the 80s about homelessness. And then so Occupy is, was really kind of only the, the latest in a long line of encamped protests. And you point out that occupiers insisted they weren't camping, they were occupying. What's the distinction? So my sense is that they are pushing back against recreational camping. They didn't want people thinking they were out there um, for fun, but rather that they were petitioning the government for redress of grievances. And that the tent, while a very important part of their protest to sort of display their their permanence and their resilience, that they were not going away, um, but that it was something different uh, than recreational camping. And occupiers also drew a distinction between what they were doing and folks who were camping out because they were experiencing homelessness. Um, in downtown Denver, at least, the Occupy movement was deemed a public health concern because of scabies and people in the encampments were not all protesters. What are your thoughts on that? So it's pretty difficult to tell uh, that line, right, between uh, functional camping uh, and political camping, right? Occupiers were certainly doing it in order to make a point, but they were also, for many of them, living there and encountered many of the same challenges that unsheltered people encounter when having to live in public spaces outdoors, such as the lack of sanitation um, or municipal services. And you write about how the Occupy movement sparked a wider and sustained discussion about the meaning and legality of sleeping outside. What does it mean to sleep outside? Why can't you do it in the woods and it's sanctioned and not in a city square with protest signs? What is your takeaway on those sorts of distinctions? So the... I mean, the, the shortest point is that it rests upon a long history of creating those distinctions because in the 19th century, those distinct, it was a much more fluid landscape um, to, to sort of decide who was doing this as a recreational versus a functional um, kind of activity. But part of the 
sort of creating the infrastructure for recreational camping made that kind of activity seem wholesome, normal, and suggested that the other forms of sleeping outside were marginal uh, and even threatening or transgressive. Uh, and so the sort of trying to police those boundaries is part of how uh, that came up in the sense of that people believed, including um, Congress people who were investigating the Occupy site in Washington, D.C., um, said that, you know, they, they didn't understand that, you know, how could you camp if you weren't doing it for leisure? It didn't make sense to them. You describe one more type of camping in your book, and that's functional camping or sleeping outside because you don't have an indoor place to sleep. It's visible and a polarizing issue, especially during the pandemic, as growing numbers of people face housing instability. You're a history professor. How does that historical lens help us understand current attitudes about functional camping? So I think that the fact that functional camping you know, used to be the only kind of camping, right? Um, I would say in the early 19th century and before, you know, lots of people camped outside as they were traveling. It's what you did when there was not indoor lodging in between your destinations. Um, but over time, as recreational camping became much more the norm, the mainstream, uh, and early recreational campers in particular tried to distance themselves from what were called in the late 19th century tramps. Right? And people worried about what these tramps who were thrown out of work by economic downturns, uh, who did not have uh, stable jobs and served the, the kind of mobile labor force, particularly for the West. Um, but people worried what, what they represented for the country as kind of rootless um, individuals, kind of sleeping willy-nilly wherever they wanted. And so you, you can see in, in a sense that there are similar attitudes over a century ago. Uh, and those progressed over time as recreational camping became even more popular, more endorsed by the state, um, by the government, right, who provided all this infrastructure, that all of the sudden, or rather, not all of a sudden, but in, in a gradual but growing way, campers who camped in non-designated spaces um, for non-recreational reasons came to seem suspicious or worrisome just based on the activity that they were doing. And you talk about policymaking, and that has continued, especially as more people have found themselves with growing economic pressures and facing housing instability. In Aurora, Colorado, Mayor Mike Kaufman announced last week that he's pushing ahead with his proposed camping ban, despite pushback from Aurora's city council members and homelessness advocates. Denver already has a camping ban which continues to face legal challenges. Does the history of functional camping offer insight into those controversial laws? Sure. I think that the it's, it's a really complicated situation, particularly in urban parks, right, where um, there are a lot of users who want to be part of that park and not have it be a living space. Um, but then we also have to recognize that living outside, sleeping outside, is a uh, logical choice for many individuals who find themselves with uh, no stable housing or who are not comfortable in uh, the shelter environment. Um, and so how do you balance these two uh, kinds of competing needs in these spaces so that they can be um, available for everyone in a way. So it's, it's a complex policy problem, to be sure. I think what the historical perspective brings to it um, is to try to get beyond that reaction to the camping, 
that it's the camping that's the problem and to get kind of underneath that and think about, well, what is the problem? Why are the people having to camp uh, and uh, what other kinds of solutions might there be? And there are cities, especially during the pandemic, that have been open to creative solutions for people to safely camp in a functional way. Things like places where unhoused folks um, have have sanctioned camping. Do you think that sanctioned functional camping is here to stay? Again, asking you to tell the future as a history professor, but what does that historical perspective provide us about what sanctioned functional camping could be here in the future? Well, I think one of the issues with uh, functional uh, camping in the past has been lack of support. And so part of the reason that they can be, uh, you know, create issues, uh, whether they're environmental impact um, or safety issues uh, in public places is because they've had, you know, basically no municipal services to clean up waste um, to help uh, uh, residents um you know, manage uh, themselves. And so those experiments that we've seen during the pandemic with these sanctioned sleeping villages, um, I think are really interesting. I think we'll learn a lot uh, when public officials start to study whether those uh, were, you know, beneficial for the residents, how they addressed some of the the problems, um, or whether some of the other things that have been tried during the pandemic that people were really um, hesitant to try before, such as using hotel space um, to house the unhoused. Um, So I think time will tell. Uh, to see how those experiments worked and whether they'll be able to roll them out in different places and in different ways. And you have looked back over a lot of time. You have studied so many decades of camping for so many reasons in the United States. So before we go, I wonder if there is a main takeaway that you have found in your research of just the changing attitudes towards many types of camping in the U.S.? So I think I would say the the biggest takeaway really is that, you know, public space and public nature is something that is owned by uh, all of us uh, in the U.S. Uh, And so thinking about how that space gets used, who uses that space, how do we share that, how do we preserve that moving forward as a collective space, um, not just to preserve the material nature, but of the the ground for gathering uh, is, is really one of the big takeaways. Thank you so much for joining us. Professor Phoebe Young is an associate professor of history at CU Boulder. She's the author of Camping Grounds, Public Nature in American Life, From the Civil War to the Occupy Movement. Thanks to Colorado Matters producer Ali Budner for bringing us this discussion. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's really difficult to be, like, in this position. It's been a turbulent year for police. I can't do something wrong. And then people say, oh, well, you're a cop, so I guess it's okay. Officer Derek Chavin's knee on George Floyd's neck told an old story of America's legacy of race and police. Does it stay on the same path, or can policing be reimagined? Episode 1 of Systemic from Colorado Public Radio, available now everywhere you get your podcasts. There's a hole in the ground just west of downtown Steamboat Springs, and what's inside is now a national natural landmark, recognized by the National Park Service earlier this year. But don't plan to explore it, because it could be deadly. John Spear is a professor of civil and environmental engineering at the Colorado School of Mines. He's one of the few people who's been inside what's known as Sulphur Cave. We spoke in February. Tell us why this cave earned the name Sulphur Cave. has to be the stink, the stink of sulfide. You can smell it on the ground all around it when you're approaching it. And it's even stronger when you get inside. So it smells like that strong rotten egg smell. But nobody really should be smelling it because there is a lack of oxygen and that could kill people who go inside, right? 
That is correct. So the OSHA standard for sulfide is about 10 parts per million. This cave is about 40 times that at 400 parts per million. And at about 80 times that at 800 parts per million, it's lethal. So since I know I am not likely to go inside, can you tell us what more about what it looks like in there? How big is this place? So this cave is amazing. It has 180 feet of surveyed passage, which is, you know, a good size. It has two small rooms that are about 20 feet below the surface. You can go into the first room, and we, the way we went into it was we ventilated it first. We pumped air down into the cave to toss out the sulfide as well as the CO2 that builds up in there. And there are these two rooms down there, and you can crawl around down inside and see what's there. But the most remarkable thing that we found in there were three things. There are um, three cave features that form in this cave. One of them is a very unique and novel worm that we found down there. Another one are these vermiculations that are kind of on the surfaces and the walls and the ceiling of the cave. They kind of look like overcooked sweet potato french fries, kind of like that dark brown (laughs) color. And then the third thing that's amazing are uh, snotties, otherwise known as snotites. And when I say snotty, I'm talking about like human snot. And you have these snot drips that hang off the ceiling of the cave. And they're gooey and mucousy and kind of disgusting looking. And they're dripping acid, sulfuric acid, into the cave as H2SO4. I love that we can go from talking about vermiculations, which are, it's essentially a surface pattern, a very fancy word for a surface pattern, to snotites. But I want to know more about these worms. Tell me what's fascinating about them. So the worms were a completely unexpected find. Worms are a small animal, of course. And these worms are kind of a blood red brown color and they're living in the water and they're consuming microbes in the form of biofilms that are living on the surfaces of the rocks that the water's flowing over. And that water has a very high concentration of sulfide in it that's off-gassing into the cave, which gives us that, that smell. But the worms are able to detoxify the sulfide while living on trace amounts of oxygen that are also in the water. And so they have this remarkable physiology to do this. And when we found them, we were stunned by what we saw because of, you know, we didn't expect to find these blood red animals uh, in the cave, in the water. And it's kind of along the lines of the things that you find at a submarine hydrothermal vent in the middle of the ocean, just a completely unique kind of life, making a unique kind of living in a very unique place. You're an environmental microbiologist. So what are you learning about the nature of life when you study a place like this, especially when you see worms that you didn't expect to see? So you think you understand the earth and then you go looking and you say, wow, I didn't understand that at all. And this is one of those places where that happened. You know, I look for microbes in unique environments, particularly like subsurface environments, because we think about how things might be relevant to a place like Mars, where life could be in the subsurface of Mars. And that's normally what we do. We're looking for bacteria and archaea, you know, the small single-celled organisms of the world. And then you come down into a place like Sulfur Cave and you find this multicellular worm living there, probably in some sort of a symbiosis that we don't understand with the microbes themselves. You have explored many caves in your work. What about this place is really sticking out to you? It sounds like it looks unusual and it's taught you a lot about life. What else? For me, when I went into this place, the first time I was in this place was 14 years ago. And I still remember it to this day because it's almost like a sensory overload. It's visually arresting for all the things that you see, the vermiculations, the snotties. The smell is overwhelming. 
Uh, you're uh, crawling around down there, so you're physically touching and feeling it. And all those things really uh, leave an impression for how you learn about an environment. Because I think you're using all of your senses to learn that. And I try to take what I learned from places like this and apply it to elsewhere. Why do you think a place like Sulphur Cave deserves to be recognized as a national natural landmark if it's not a place that most people can see or experience? So to me, I think it's really great that this place has been recognized because not only does it mean we're recognizing, uh, you know, a, a truly scenic place that we can all look at for like, for example, Garden of the Gods or Hanging Lake here in Colorado are both national natural landmarks. And so that's something you see and you appreciate the beauty of it. But here we are protecting something that we understand to be beautiful, but it's also dangerous. And I think it's great to have designation for an equally as unique place that you might not be able to access very easily, but we're setting it aside and recognize it for its specialty. The National Natural Landmark Program started, I think, around 1962 when Stuart Udall was Secretary of the Interior. And so, you know, we came up with the National Park Service in 1872 with Yellowstone National Park, and it took us 90 years to start thinking about how special lots of places can be. And this is one of them. How unusual is a cave like this on our planet? To our knowledge, it's very unusual. This is one of the most unique caves in Colorado. It formed by sulfuric acid dissolution of travertine. There are other sulfuric acid formed caves in our country and around the world. But this one's very unique because of what's in it, how it formed, and where it is. And I think that you know, globally, there are probably a caves or two like this, but as far as one that has a, a worm that's living on sulfide and trace amounts of oxygen, this might be the only one, and that makes it extra special. John, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very much for having me. John Spear is a professor of civil and environmental engineering at the Colorado School of Mines. He's one of the few people who's been inside Sulphur Cave, which is now a national natural landmark. We spoke in February. I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.